Welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner, bringing you an hour of information, opinion, culture, and history about the African American community. On this program, I'll bring you readings from Time Magazine, The Recon Report, Science Magazine, and I'll start off with two stories about black chief executive officers, one from Fortune Magazine and this one from Inc. Magazine. The title is An Exclusive Conversation with Tony Towns Whitley, one of only two black women running a Fortune 500 company. It was written by Stephanie Maida and published October 2nd, 2023. Note, after the introduction, this interview is in a question-and-answer format. Tony Towns Whitley today officially becomes CEO of Science Applications International Corporation, SAIC, a technology integrator based in Reston, Virginia. Towns Whitley's appointment is notable for a number of reasons. She is one of two black women currently running Fortune 500 companies. TIAA's Tashonda Brown Duckett is the other. Rosalind Brewer left the top job at Walgreens Boots Alliance earlier this year. Towns Whitley succeeds Nasik S. Keene, a rare example of a woman CEO handing off to another woman at a large publicly held company. Towns Whitley is well positioned to lead SAIC, which provides tech and engineering services primarily to the U.S. government. Her father is a retired three-star Army general, and for years she served as president of U.S. regulated industries for Microsoft. She spoke with me exclusively ahead of officially taking the CEO reins about her historic ascent, lessons learned from Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella, and her advice for corporate America on diversifying its CEO ranks. Question. People have heard the name, but I think even someone who reads the Wall Street Journal every day would be hard-pressed to describe SAIC. Give me your elevator ride version of what SAIC does. Towns Whitley. I would describe us in three ways. We provide mission support, mission IT, and mission engineering to the Department of Defense, the intelligence agencies, and to the space agencies, including Space Force, as well as government agencies in the civilian space. Question. When you say mission, does that refer to projects or something more holistic? Towns Whitley. We operate at a program level where we are providing humans who provide their program's capability. Experts on the ground. We also provide cloud data analytics as well as edge computing that allows them to get real-time data for decision-making and engineering. Question. How did your experience at Microsoft prepare you for this role? Towns Whitley. I was managing a fairly large portfolio, not only government, but regulated industries across the U.S., and had an opportunity to run part of the global operation at Microsoft. It really gives you a sense of scalability in how you take a portfolio and scale it over time. I came out of the government business, but I quickly went into financial services healthcare, state and local government, as well as higher education. All of these are highly regulated industries, and a lot of the technology tools being built for the future are starting to converge across these sectors. The Microsoft opportunity allowed me to go beyond government and apply some commercial best practice into the regulated space. Finally, Microsoft was in a shift when I joined in 2015. Satya Nadella, 
capital S-A-T-Y, capital N-A-D-E-L-L-A, the CEO was my final interview. He kind of had me at hello, but I tried to play hard to get for a few minutes there. When I decided to join, one of the pivots that I talked to Satya about was shifting the company from building innovation to having a purpose-driven approach to technology. As excited as we got about what we could build and innovate, if it wasn't applicable to solving real-life problems, we weren't going to spend a lot of time or attention there. I believe SAIC has some of that in its journey, thinking about how to continually drive toward applied innovation. Question. What, if anything, did you learn from Satya Nadella about leadership that you'll apply in this new role? Towns Whitley. When I joined the company, Satya was on a journey toward the growth mindset. He had just talked about the growth mindset research from Carol Dweck at Stanford, and we had just laid out the principles of how to build curiosity in a company. That is one particular theme that I want to bring in and reinforce at SAIC. Another was around empathy. I'm an economist by training, and I call Satya a closet economist. Even though he's an engineer's engineer, he really had a sense of macro and microeconomics of the work that we do. The impact that we could have way beyond the solution or a license or a software capability. SAIC already has such a strong sense of mission and impact, and the idea here is for us to expand the denominator beyond the defense industrial base, which has been our core, to all of the critical infrastructure across the U.S. and really be open to how we're part of an ecosystem of securing this country. Question. What are some of the things you are hoping to accomplish in your first 100 days? Towns Whitley. I'm starting with the hypothesis that this company, with its rich legacy and its current portfolio, is undervalued by the market. And it is also slightly misunderstood. How do we differentiate? What is our unique capability? I think we have to articulate that better, and we actually have to execute against it. I've just hired a chief innovation officer coming right out of the Air Force. She's going to bring some real-world perspective to our portfolio, how we go to the market, and how we introduce even more innovation to our customers. We have a culture of long-tenured, high-integrity relationships with our customers. But we're also a large company, and it's very easy to define yourself by your customer's mission and lose sight of the company's mission. And so, you want to shift to having an enterprise mindset, as well as a entrepreneurial execution, so that you feel like an owner, and you execute like an owner as part of your cultural transformation. And finally, our brand. I know SAIC, but I think our brand has been slightly diluted, as many in the system integration industry have during the last few years. So we need to be crystal clear about our brand going forward. Question. SAIC succession represents a female CEO to female CEO handoff. I remember when Anne Mulcahy handed the reins to Ursula Burns at Xerox, the first time a woman succeeded a woman as CEO of a Fortune 500 company. What do you think it is about the SAIC board or the succession process that enabled this still all-too-rare female-to-female handoff? Towns Whitley, I think you answered the question in your question the board, the culture of the organization, and I would argue maybe the experience of the two leaders came together to create what has been for me personally the most seamless transition I've had professionally. 
The board was very clear on their expectations in their CEO search. They highlighted their focus on profitable organic growth, but also on becoming a leader in our peer group and getting back to leadership in the market. They created an environment where we had this three to four month transition where we had time and space to give each other and to learn from each other. Nasik Keen is a colleague and a friend, and quite frankly, I wouldn't have taken this role had I not known this was her decision to move forward. Keen announced her retirement on May 18th. Question. With the departure of Roz Brewer from Walgreens, you'll be one of just two black women running a Fortune 500 company. What message do you want to send shareholders, boards, and corporate America about the need for greater diversity at the CEO level? Towns Whitley. I was with the other female in our duo just a few days ago, and we were talking about the importance of how we show up and that we have a greater pipeline into these roles. And the way you build that greater pipeline begins with ensuring in every company that you're aware of the diversity that exists at specific points of career and specific types of opportunities. For example, I remember years ago, I think it was Accenture that started something called assignment boards that identified the plum assignments that move a career. Maybe it's a P&L opportunity or a role in innovation leadership. How diverse are we at those points? Are we diverse in the areas that are going to move people's careers? And if we're diverse there, you start to see career progression that looks in line with the greater population. This is an opportunity for me, not only as a female, but as an African-American female. We've never had an African-American female as a CEO in national security. And yet, if you look at our security forces, they're quite diverse. And so we've got to ask ourselves, both by sector and by size of company, why are we not building that pipeline? And then, quite frankly, people like myself and others, we have to show up. We have to demonstrate that we can make this happen. We can grow businesses. We understand top line, bottom line, and all of the shareholder pressures, and we can deliver. And I think the more that occurs, we're going to start to see some changes. That was the article titled, An Exclusive Conversation with Tony Towns Whitley, one of only two black women running a Fortune 500 company. It was published at the Inc.com website, that's spelled I-N-C dot com, and was published October 2nd, 2023. My second story about black chief executive officers is titled Ken Frazier, long one of the few black Fortune 500 CEOs, is fighting against the vestiges of the way this country was run for 400 years. It was written by Trey Williams and published October 3rd, 2023 at the Fortune.com website. Ken Frazier, former CEO of pharmaceutical company Merck, had a message for CEOs during Fortune's CEO Initiative Conference on Tuesday, October 3rd. As companies contend with polarizing social politics and ready for the upcoming 2024 presidential election, Frazier, who was for many years one of the few black CEOs on the Fortune 500, asked that leaders not be afraid to stand up and speak out. CEOs don't want to get in the middle of every political dispute, especially given how divided our country is, Frazier told Fortune CEO Alan Murray in a panel alongside 110 CEO Debbie Dyson. He added that American democracy consists of a certain series of principles and conditions. It is my view that while I don't want to drag my company into a political dispute, 
that when those kinds of principles are not being upheld by our elected officials, it becomes the responsibility of the citizens, and CEOs obviously are among the most influential citizens. Frazier, who co-founded the Equal Opportunity Employment Organization 110, appeared with Dyson to talk about DEI efforts and the organization's goal to close the opportunity gap for black talent and anyone applying for jobs without a four-year degree. In 2017, while still CEO at Merck, Frazier resigned from President Donald Trump's American Manufacturing Council in protest of statements Trump made following white supremacist demonstrations in Charlottesville. Frazier resigned as Merck CEO in 2021 after an 11 years at the company that brought it one of his most lucrative drugs in cancer immunotherapy, Keytruda, and saw Frazier play a role in defending the company from an avalanche of lawsuits. He is now the chairman of Health Assurance Initiatives of venture capital giant General Catalyst and is attempting to change how companies approach hiring in order to open doors wider for black and underrepresented talent to land at companies many of which say diversity of thought and talent is key to the success of business. As an organizing and governing principle, most people would agree that race neutrality or colorblindness is a good thing for a multicultural, multiracial society, Frazier says. On the other hand, most people would acknowledge there are still vestiges of the way this country has run for 400 years that explain why unemployment for African Americans and why life expectancy, and why, after years of redlining, neighborhoods are segregated. Frazier told a personal anecdote from his childhood to make his point, noting that he and his sister were the youngest of nine siblings, and they came along in the birth order when the social engineers in Philadelphia decided to make race-conscious decisions about who went to what school. They called that school desegregation. As a result, they were both bused to better schools. I happen to think that that obviously benefited me, and it might have benefited Merck too, but the fact of the matter is, I don't think that that actually hurt somebody, creating that opportunity for me. It wasn't at the expense of somebody else. Taking Frazier's advice on standing up for principles is proving challenging for several Fortune 500 companies right now. Frazier says leaders should feel empowered to speak out when issues buck against their and their company's values, and especially with younger generations watching companies every move. There are a lot of young people in our companies, and they're watching us. And when we give up on the things that we've said were our values for decades, why would they believe us, Frazier says. My whole thing is pick your spots and ask yourself, do you have a right to speak to this issue? Does your company's values speak to this issue? And if so, I think CEOs should not be cowed into not speaking. That was the Fortune.com article titled, Ken Frazier, long one of the few black Fortune 500 CEOs, is fighting against the vestiges of the way this country was run for 400 years. Up next is a story titled, How Civil Rights Were Made and Remade by Black Communities in the Jim Crow South. It's from Time Magazine and it's Time.com website. It was written by Dylan Penningroth and published September 26, 2023. For more than 100 years after slavery's end, white people maintained a legal system in the South that barred black people from voting or holding office, held down their wages with the threat of the chain gang, and constantly reinforced their inferior status through violence and humiliating acts of discrimination. 
Looking back on these realities, it is tempting to imagine black Southerners as inhabiting a kind of law-free zone, shut out from the law and afraid to go anywhere near the courthouse, and that the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s was the culmination of a centuries-long struggle toward freedom and full citizenship to galvanize the power of the federal government against the white supremacists who ruled the state house and the county courthouse. Yet black people in the Jim Crow South were already using civil rights, not a federal right to protection from racial discrimination, but rather the state-level rights of property, contract, and the right to go to a court of law. Nowhere did the promise and peril of these fundamental rights loom larger than in the borrowing and lending of money. Nearly everyone in the rural South was simultaneously a debtor and a creditor, signing promises on scraps of paper to cover small debts like a month's worth of flour and salt, co-signing on bonds for bigger debts, or on deeds of trust, which worked roughly like a mortgage to buy land. Nate Shaw, a tenant farmer in Alabama in the early 1900s, relied on a steady flow of credit to buy the things that kept his family's business, the farm, running. Shaw borrowed his money using a pair of legal agreements called a promissory note, a written promise to pay a certain sum of money on a certain date or dates, and a deed of trust, the mortgage-like document that secures the note with collateral. Today, the collateral, or security, typically covers only the asset you are buying. If you default on a car loan, GMAC takes the car. If you default on a mortgage, Citibank takes the house. You negotiate over the interest rate or points, not the collateral. Farm credit in 1900 was different. Shaw had to negotiate over the collateral, too. What those two twin papers really did was allocate risk in the frighteningly risky business of farming. By seizing control and the oversight of the credit process, a white landlord and his network of white merchants were able to shift the risk onto tenants, dictate where tenants shopped, and inflate the prices tenants paid. Shaw kept an eagle eye not only on his note, the interest rate, but also his deed of trust, the debt paper, because if the crop failed or if prices fell, the deed of trust showed which of Shaw's assets could be sold to pay off his debt. All the notorious abuses, the infamous peonage laws, which criminalized the non-payment of certain debts, the landlords who made people sign a note for $1,250, but actually handed over only $1,000, or who charged 35% interest for a week-long loan secured by the borrower's household effects, meaning that the borrower could lose everything. All of it stood up atop this fundamental struggle over credit, waged through the civil rights of property and contract. The note and the deed of trust were the battleground of black legal life, the place where a family's fortunes rose or fell. The problem for people like Nate Shaw wasn't ignorance or fear of getting tangled up in the law. He dealt with legal matters all the time, and he knew a bad loan when he saw one. He took bad loans because there were no good ones. He tried to protect himself, first, by attempting to keep as much of his property off the deed of trust as possible, and second, by shifting his debts around, asking one person after another to take up the note for him the same way that people today juggle credit cards, looking for a lower interest rate or a way to stretch out their payments. That hunt for decent credit was one of the things that propelled black people out of the countryside towards southern cities like Richmond or Memphis, then north to Chicago and Cleveland and Syracuse. Predatory lending would follow the Great Migration north, 
disguised as payday loans in contract-selling furniture stores, and so with the migrants' coping strategies. Friendship business amongst the white folks is what Shaw called the predatory lending he faced in Alabama. It was a spider's web, spun to control and profit from black farmers, but the web touched whites too and could chafe them if anybody tugged too hard on its filaments. To credit literally means to believe, and every credit transaction is, at bottom, one person putting his faith in another that he will be repaid. What channels that faith and puts the power of the state behind its enforcement are those twin legal acts, the deed and the promissory note. In the Jim Crow South, ordinary people used promissory notes like money. Instead of paying cash for your flour and fertilizer, you took a note that someone else had written out to you, that is, someone's February promise to pay you $100 in May, and you endorsed it over to a shopkeeper who could then collect the $100 in May. Usually that endorsee would take it at a discount so that you got only $95 worth of groceries or $95 taken off your debt, which meant you were effectively paying a 20% interest rate. The resulting daisy chain of IOUs represented and worsened the region's economic inequality, grinding millions of black people into poverty. But there was another dimension to the Jim Crow credit economy. It required whites to recognize black people's legal personhood. A contract is only binding if both parties know what they are doing and enter into it of their own free will. If the words I accept or I promise to pay mean something legally. The fact that black people were now putting their X marks to notes and deeds was both a sign of how vulnerable they were in the New South and a signal that the rights revolution that had begun during Reconstruction was now fully mature. The South's small population of free African Americans had signed deeds and notes back in the days of slavery, but in the early 1900s, black people's capacities and understanding mattered more than ever to white people. And here's another crucial thing. Most people did their borrowing and lending without any lawyers. As a result, the law was full of rules that spelled out how voluntary an assent had to be and how much knowledge and understanding a person needed for a court to say he was legally bound by his promise. For example, the duty to read was a set of rules that generally made it hard for people to get out of contracts by saying they hadn't understood what they signed. But the duty to read also constrained those who wrote deeds and read them aloud. Those literate people owed a confidence to anyone who did not understand technical legal language. So if the person offering the contract lied about what was in it or hid important provisions in the fine print, then the minds of the parties did not meet and he shouldn't expect a judge to enforce it. Testimony in trial courts and other documents suggest that these official rules and their underlying assumptions about knowledge and understanding were more than a figment of law professors' imagination. That adults, including black people, generally knew that it was illegal to force a man to sign a note without reading it to him, telling him what he was signing. That a person should say whether she understood what she was about to sign and that a binding signature could be made by touching the pen. In fact, it is likely that the judges and law professors derived their rules about the duty to read in part from what they knew about how people actually made deals. In the Jim Crow South, life's ordinary business could not go on if you could not make contracts with black people. 
White people needed to be able to treat African Americans as competent, reasonable people. They needed black people to have a working legal knowledge. It was an example of what the late Derrick Bell called entrance convergence. The system makes room for black people's interest only when it converges with the interests of whites. Every day, black people use their legal common sense, their intuitions about how a judge might apply a legal rule, to make sense of what it took to make a binding contract, the difference between a lawful and an unlawful eviction, a borrower's obligations under a promissory note and deed of trust, and more. They stood at a disadvantage, of course, but not because they were ignorant of the law or scared of the law, and not even primarily because white officials cheated or intimidated them out of their rights. Rather, they stood at a disadvantage because under the ordinary rules of property and contract, the civil rights that belonged to all free people, people on one side of the table started with a bigger pile of bargaining chips. Landlords had more of them than renters, creditors more than borrowers. In the early 20th century United States, civil rights were vindicated in courts, but they were made and remade by people pursuing their everyday lives on front porches, in church basements, streets, and fields. That was the article, How Civil Rights Were Made and Remade by Black Communities in the Jim Crow South. It was written by Dylan C. Penningroth and published September 26, 2023 at the Time.com website. Additionally, that article was adapted from the book Before the Movement, The Hidden History of Black Civil Rights, which was written by Dylan C. Penningroth. If you've just joined us, you're listening to the African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner. My next article is about farming, and it's from the Recon Report, and it's recon.news website. That's spelled R-E-C-K-O-N dot N-E-W-S. The title is The Last Plantation, Inside Black Farmers' Long Fight Against the Government for Economic Justice. It was written by April Simpson and published October 3rd, 2023. The morning sun hugs the horizon just as Nate Bradford Jr. hops into his pickup to make the hour drive home. Many in this rural Oklahoma town are getting ready to go to work. Bradford is getting off. He works as a gas plant operator earning around $70,000 a year. The job pays the bills, but his schedule is a grind because he alternates between working the night shift and the day shift. Seven days, seven nights, one week off. Repeat, he tells himself he can't do this job for another 20 years. Bradford lives on a 160-acre farm and his dream is to make his living from it. Hire foreman to maintain the cows and property, build a nice home for his family on the high ground across the creek, and pass on what he can to his three children, including one already studying agribusiness west of Tulsa at Langston University. But the past keeps blocking his future. It's just as true for other black farmers and cattle ranchers. They are a dwindling lot, living on less land and battered by financial hardships and uncertainties that place a heavier burden on them than on their white counterparts. One study found that black farmers lost $326 billion in land and wealth between 1920 and 1997 alone. Today's black-owned farms are smaller and earn less than farms owned by white people. Black farmers are severely restricted by having less access to credit. The lifeblood of agriculture that allows farmers to successfully operate a farm from one season to the next. 
The U.S. Department of Agriculture, a lender of last resort, can help farmers who have nowhere else to go. But for decades, the department denied black farmers credit and access to benefit programs. And it still struggles to remedy the impact of that history of discrimination. A Center for Public Integrity analysis of data from the U.S. Department of Agriculture found that the agency's black borrowers have the highest loan delinquency rates of all racial and ethnic groups. Black farmers and ranchers, it's a dying deal, Bradford says. The industry has changed so much that the only ones who are going to survive now is the people who are big operations. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack likes to describe the USDA's role in the words of Abraham Lincoln, who, in his last address to Congress in 1862, called it the People's Department. President Lincoln knew the importance of agriculture to our prosperity, particularly at a time when about half of all Americans lived on the farm, Vilsack said in a column commemorating USDA's 150th anniversary. Now, less than 2% of Americans still live on farms, and the data confirm that today's farms and farmers are markedly different than they were in an earlier era. For instance, the number of farmers has dropped 67% since 1900, even as the U.S. population boomed, according to the Congressional Research Service. USDA figures indicate that four of every five farmers hold jobs off their farm like Bradford. Most spouses do, too. Black farmers are different from their white colleagues in many ways, yet many would argue that the major difference separating them is the color of their skin. The historical impact that discrimination has had on black people in social, political, and make-or-break economic terms has continuing consequences for farmers today. Historical discrimination in this country has been about black and white, not that others have got everything they deserve either, said Lloyd Wright, a former director of the USDA's Office of Civil Rights. If you're trying to address racial discrimination and you don't address the black problem, you're really not addressing racial discrimination. Black farmers wonder whether the People's Department is still doing all it can and should be doing for people like them. The department discriminated against black farmers when it denied, delayed, or otherwise frustrated the applications of those farmers for farm loans and other credit and benefit programs while disbanding its Office of Civil Rights and ceasing to respond to claims of discrimination, U.S. District Judge Paul Friedman wrote in approving a 1999 settlement agreement in a lawsuit that challenged the USDA to fulfill its mission to black farmers. Successful claimants receive some combination of cash, debt relief, and tax payments. But the agreement did not require the department to fire anyone who had engaged in discrimination or change its ways because the plaintiffs didn't ask for that. There has always been a disconnect between what President Lincoln envisioned as the People's Department, serving all of the people, and the widespread belief that the department is the last plantation, a department perceived as playing a key role in what some see as a conspiracy to force minority and disadvantaged farmers off their land through discriminatory loan practices, Friedman wrote. Referring to the USDA's role, Willard Tillman, executive director of the Oklahoma Black Historical Research Project, said, Land is the key to it all. He added, if there's anything they're going to do to help the farmer, it's not going to help them to the magnitude of those that have all the land. For many farmers, the U.S. Department of Agriculture isn't a building on Independence Avenue in Washington, D.C. It is a branch called the Farm Service Agency, which administers many of the USDA's services, including farm loans. As a lender of last resort, USDA is supposed to be farmers' financial lifeline in a time of storms. 
Bad weather can affect production, which in turn can affect markets. The health of those markets affects cash flow, and cash flow affects the all-important bottom line. In the past, black farmers and ranchers have said that the USDA discriminates against them. They said they were denied the opportunity to submit loan applications or access to timely loans and benefit programs that resulted in many taking on crushing debt and losing their farms. In 1999, they settled what would become a more than $2 billion class action lawsuit against the department, which resulted in payments to about 35,000 farmers. But the settlement in the case Pickford v. Glickman did not mandate that USDA change many of the things that black farmers, advocates, and academics argue are systemic problems in the department. The culture didn't change. The employees didn't change, said Sylvia Stewart research communications director, and senior research associate at Brandeis University in Waltham, Massachusetts. When farmers went in to apply for their loans, they still saw the same people who threw their applications in the trash. You still have that stagnant culture that continues to hang around. The Center for Public Integrity found that black borrowers are nearly four times as likely as white borrowers to default. Black borrowers had the highest loan delinquency rates among all racial and ethnic groups in each year from 2015 through 2021. The disparity could be the result of a number of systemic problems that black farmers face. Less access to or participation in helpful farm loan programs. A lack of cash flow that means farmers are merely surviving from one year to the next. A lack of flexibility from their loan officers. Zach Deschanel an administrator from the Farm Service Agency said they are taking steps to achieve more racial equity in farm lending. For the remainder of its tenure, the agency will begin to institutionalize racial equity and work on a culture change of exercising that discretion to the benefit of the producers, Deschanel said. While the agency is aware that racial disparities in loan delinquency exist, its goal is to ensure that we're serving everyone equitably, Deschanel said. And equity isn't just about race, Ducheneau said. Equity is economic circumstances. Equity is diversity in production practices. Equity is where you're at in the food supply chain. So we're taking that very seriously and doing our best to ensure that the improvements we make for everybody also serve those that have been less well served in the past. Some of the department's equity work includes taking a new approach to farm loan making and servicing that encourages more discretion in favor of the borrower. This approach will circulate more capital in rural economies. The department is also making administrative improvements like reducing the length of the paper loan application and rolling out an online application with a fast-track approval process. And they're working with third-party groups to improve access to capital and land, funding an equity commission that's released recommendations for how the department can improve services for underserved farmers and training future generations for agriculture jobs by funding research and education at minority-serving institutions. Black farmers own less American farmland than before, 5.5% at the beginning of the 20th century, but only 1% at the end. Black farmers also are smaller on average in size affects earnings. Farmland can contribute to wealth accumulation as the price of farmland increases, be used as collateral for obtaining credit, and provide financial stability for farmland owners, the Congressional Research Service report said. Black-owned farms are smaller and generate less sales and profits per farm than peers, according to a 2021 report by McKinsey & Company, a global management consulting firm. 
By bringing black farmers to parity on per-farm revenue and profit, there is $5 billion in economic value that can be created. Increasing business participation for black farmers could create ladders of opportunity for 66,000 black workers employed in the agriculture sector and beyond. The median income for farmers, $57,000, is 25% larger than the median household income for all black Americans, the McKenzie Report said. Tillman executive director of the Oklahoma Black Historical Research Project, is among those who argue that USDA's programs are tilted toward larger farms. Given how farm sizes vary by race, that has taken a disproportionate toll on black farmers, he said. Some farmers of color have argued previous discrimination in USDA programs has helped to produce these very conditions now used to explain disparate treatment, the Congressional Research Service noted. On a gravel road around the bend from Bradford's property is a tidy old black cemetery. Eastern Oklahoma has the largest concentration of black-owned farmland in the state. All the land in these parts was once owned by Native Americans, but the federal government took it from them. First, the government forced tribal nations west from Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Kentucky, Mississippi, North Carolina, and Tennessee to Indian Territory. Present-day Oklahoma along what's known as the Trail of Tears. The federal government gave this land to the tribes, then took much of it back from the ones that aligned with the Confederacy during the Civil War. In the aftermath, formerly enslaved people started to become landowners, including some who came to Oklahoma from the Deep South. Bradford's ancestors came here from Georgia and Louisiana around the turn of the 20th century. They settled about an hour's drive south of Tulsa and just north of Bowley, one of Oklahoma's 50 historic all-black towns, and they and other migrants call their new home the Georgia Line. It's the namesake of Bradford's business, G-Line Ranch. But many black people were not able to hold on to their land due to violence and racial discrimination that deprived them of loans and markets to sell their goods. Others left their small towns and rural communities for better lives and economic opportunities in cities. That's history, but its impacts are still felt now. The share of households of color is growing in this country, and we're robbing a lot of them, especially African Americans, of the chance to build economic opportunities for themselves and their families, said Christian Weller, a senior fellow at the Center of American Progress, a public policy research and advocacy organization based in D.C. As Bradford turns into his driveway, he's greeted by a black metal ranch sign with the letter B in the center. At the end of the drive is a farmhouse with a cozy porch, black shutters, and a sleepy dog named Ava. By the time he gets home, his daughter will have left to catch the school bus. He might catch his wife before she's off to work in Tulsa. Despite the comforts of home, it can be hard to get his mind off his situation. He sees white farmers and ranchers and white-owned agriculture corporations getting the government support they need, especially during tough times like the pandemic and the inflation that's come in its aftermath. I had people I was competing against getting free money, Bradford said. So as a black producer, it's like you can't produce. I've come desensitized to it, he said. It is what it is. I still have to keep going on no matter how much the pressure is on. He hopes to one day leave the land in G-Line Ranch where he raises cattle for beef to his children. His sons, both in college, come home on weekends to help out. Nathaniel Trayvon Bradford, who goes by trade to friends and family, is studying engineering at Oklahoma State University. 
His younger brother, Fabian Bradford, is studying agribusiness at Langston, the country's westernmost historically black university. They're doing the best they can, but unfortunately they're going to have a family at one point and they need to change their priorities, Bradford said. You can't blame them for that. That's just life. They can't keep hanging out here. This is like a money pit. Bradford works on the farm until noon, then catches some sleep. Before sunset, he's on the road again to work before starting his day anew. That was the article, The Last Plantation, Inside Black Farmers' Long Fight Against the Government for Economic Justice. It was written by April Simpson, published October 3rd, 2023, in the Recon Reports, recon.news website. My next reading is about DNA research. It's from Science Magazine and its science.org website. The title is Forging Connections. DNA from enslaved black workers at a 19th century iron forge links them to living descendants. But the research swirls with ethical questions. It was published August 3rd, 2023 and written by Andrew Curry. Hanson Summers first appears in Maryland archives in 1834 when an inventory from Catoctin Furnace, capital C-A-T-O-C-T-I-N, an iron smelter in the ore-rich foothills of Maryland's Blue Ridge Mountains, lists an enslaved 17-year-old boy by the name of Henson. Fifteen years later, the furnace's owners mention in a handwritten ledger that Henson was being sold for $500 to another iron smelter nearby. Then, in 1899, an obituary in the Hagerstown, Maryland newspaper lauds Hanson Summers, age 82, who was noted for his great strength and thought nothing of wheeling half a ton. He was employed by the Antietam Iron Works. Summer's story of survival and ironworking skill was uncovered by genealogists and historians hoping to tell the story of black workers at Catoctin Furnace, a hellish place centered on a three-story furnace kept burning for months at a time. Genealogists from the Catoctin Furnace Historical Society tracked down Summer's descendants including his 86-year-old great-great-granddaughter, Agnes Jackson. On Juneteenth this year, Jackson and her daughters drove to Catoctin for the first time from their homes in nearby Hagerstown. We never knew we were connected to the people here, Jackson says, sitting on a folding chair in a small museum dedicated to the forge and its history. Our ancestors were enslaved. It wasn't a topic people wanted to talk about. Last year... Jackson, who identifies as African-American, also took a DNA test. She hoped to learn whether she and her daughters are related to any furnace workers who were buried in a small cemetery near the site. For the first time, answering such a question may be possible thanks to a new study of DNA of 27 people from that cemetery published today in Science. Other analysis of the bones had already offered a glimpse of the harsh lives of enslaved people in an industrial setting. Now researchers have partnered with the consumer DNA testing company 23andMe to compare the ancient Catoctin furnace genomes to those of almost 10 million living people in the company's database. They have identified 41,799 relatives, including hundreds of potential direct descendants. But the company hasn't yet notified any descendants about their results as it works through the ethics of contacting people who agree to let their data be used in anonymized studies. 
At the same time, researchers are wary of traumatizing people unprepared for links to enslaved ancestors. Many in the black community say such information, when collected with community consent, would have poignant value. For marginalized communities whose history has been obscured, this technology can be leveraged to tell their stories, says Jada Ben Torres, a black biological anthropologist at Vanderbilt University who was not part of the new study. There's a beauty in connecting the past to the present. Connections to the past were severed because of the transatlantic slave trade, explains Carter Clinton, a geneticist at North Carolina State University who was African-American. When possible, science uses sources' own preferred identifications such as African-American or black. Today, there's a thirst for knowledge. How do we reconstruct those lives and find out where our ancestors came from and what does that mean for how I identify today? It's something we want and don't have in comparison to other ethnicities in America. But rapid advances in genetics and genealogy open up hard questions about the power dynamics of studying the remains of enslaved people, such as who speaks for communities with no known genetic descendants. This is one of the better executed projects I've seen in terms of the way they included the community and have been thoughtful about including black American scholars, says Alexandra McDougall, a black archaeologist at Columbia University. But, she says, there's so much farther to go. Some think the Catoctin researchers didn't do enough to involve today's black community, for example. Clinton adds that linking DNA from historic remains to known living relatives is significant for every African-American in this country, and I'm rooting for a way to figure out how to make this happen ethically. The question is, who was the ultimate decision-maker in making these connections? Today, Catoctin Furnace sits just off Maryland's Highway 15, at the foot of the Blue Ridge Mountains, 80 kilometers north of Washington, D.C. On a muggy but cool June morning, Elizabeth Comer pushes into the woods headed for the cemetery. The trees are still dripping from showers the night before, and the thrum of cars nearby is constant. 200 years ago, the noise around the cemetery would have been different. The hammering of iron, ringing of picks in an adjacent ore pit, and roar of a bellows-fired blast furnace, but just as oppressive. It was never quiet, says Comer, a white archaeologist and president of the Catoctin Furnace Historical Society. It still isn't. As she picks her way through the thick undergrowth, Comer, who grew up nearby, describes the furnace's history starting in the 1760s when it was founded to supply metal for the fast-growing American colonies. Catoctin churned out shells, cannonballs, and kettles for the Continental Army in the Revolutionary War. After the war ended, production shifted to peacetime products such as stoves, pots and pans, and raw pig iron. When the furnace ran, a water wheel turned a massive bellows, heating charcoal in a stone chimney or stack 10 meters high. Fires blazing for months at a time, the stack's hunger for fuel stripped nearby slopes bare of trees. Dozens of workers and families lived and toiled under a constant pall of smoke. From its first days, the furnace's white owners likely used black labor for the hardest jobs, Comer says. Black workers were responsible for everything from keeping the massive furnace fires burning to channeling molten iron into sand molds. Work was constant. A German-speaking Moravian pastor, Friedrich Schlegel, described conditions at the forge as lamentable in his diary after visiting in 1799. 
He recalled that enslaved workers crowded up to him and complained how hard they worked every day, including Sundays, to keep the iron flowing. In the 1830s and 40s, many of the forges enslaved workers were sold, like Summers, or leased to other ironworks, then gradually replaced by immigrants from Ireland, England, and Germany who had to pay for food and lodging. There's this sudden replacement by free European labor, and it's not clear where the black community went, MacDougall says. 20th century historians lauded the immigrants' contributions but skipped over the pivotal role of black workers. The cemetery was forgotten, too, until an archaeological survey ahead of highway construction revealed human remains. In 1979 and 1980, a rescue excavation uncovered 35 graves, 32 of which contained human remains. Some of the simple, uncarved white and gray stones used as grave markers still sit today in the woods where archaeologists set them aside more than 40 years ago. The graves were dated to about 1800, and features of bones showed they belonged to people of African ancestry. Maryland officials later transferred them to the Smithsonian Institution, where they sat in storage for decades. In 2014, Comer started to search for local families with ties to the cemetery to help tell the site's story. She was stymied by the lack of records. Dozens of people who lived at the forge in the early 1800s are remembered only as fleeting first-name entries in inventories and diaries. Millie, Hercules, Bob, Chloe, Lucinda, Elizabeth, Andrew. Their stories and connections to living individuals were lost. Comer was able to reconstruct Summer's story only because his first name was unusual. In that sense, Catoctin Furnace is far from unique. Until the census of 1870, U.S. records only rarely referred to enslaved black people by full name. Enslaved families were often broken apart on purpose splintering family trees. For black people seeking their ancestors, that created a brick wall of slavery prior to 1870, says historian Henry Louis Gates Jr. of Harvard University, a co-author on the new study who was African-American. To see beyond that wall, Comer, also a co-author, applied for a grant to reanalyze the cemetery's bones. She hoped new methods, including ancient DNA analysis, would tell a more complete story about Catoctin's black workers. DNA sampling presented a chicken-or-egg ethical problem. Until the scientists had DNA results from the unnamed individuals in the cemetery, they couldn't get consent from genetic descendants to sample remains. So they applied a broader definition of descendant, expanding it to local black community members whom they asked about the study. This expansive concept of kinship, which originated with work in the 1990s at the New York African Burial Ground in Lower Manhattan, has been applied in the handful of other studies of the DNA of enslaved people. It could be a community that's not related but is residing in the region, who share a story and feel a responsibility for that enslaved community, explains Clinton, who did his Ph.D. work on the African burial ground, now a national monument. Because of these broken lineages, you can define descendant in different ways. Not just am I genetically related to you, but are you invited to the cookout? Comer and Smithsonian curators sought support from the African American Resources Cultural and Heritage Society, AARCH, a nonprofit in Frederick, Maryland, focused on documenting the county's African-American history. 
AARCH Society members visited the Smithsonian Lab in 2016, and the group's then-president supported the studies, including drilling into the bones for DNA. When this started, I didn't have a direct descendant community, Comer says. Now, thank God, we're getting one. Before geneticists began to extract DNA, biological anthropologists at the Smithsonian studied the human remains in an attempt to reconstruct life at the furnace. The bones offer testimony to conditions different from those at plantations and at least as harsh. Nearly half of the 32 graves contain the remains of children under age four, some of whom had bowed lower legs, a classic symptom of vitamin D deficiency known as rickets. A smoky haze so thick it blocked the Maryland sun, such as a wildfire, likely reduced vitamin D production in skin. By analyzing heavy metals in the bones, the researchers were able to document individual exposure to toxins. Some people had high levels of lead and zinc. One man in his late 40s had zinc levels nearly triple of that of most enslaved people in the region. He might have worked as a filler, shoveling charcoal and zinc-rich iron ore into the blazing furnace, Comer says. Other results set Catoctin apart, too. In the 19th century, death usually claimed the very young or very old, or women in childbirth. But the 32 people excavated at Catoctin include five teenage boys. Jobs that were considered menial labor were pretty dangerous, and if you weren't skilled, you were at risk from dying, says co-author Carrie Brunwelthide, capital B-R-W-E-L-H-E-I-D-E a white biological anthropologist at the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History, NMNH. They were doing jobs they weren't physically ready for. One boy who died at age 12 or 13 had a dislocated shoulder. A 15-year-old had herniated discs. One elderly man Brunwell Hyde examined had such severe spinal damage, he would have been bent nearly double when he died. An 1804 entry in Schlegel's diary offers an uncanny reference that might be a match. I then visited a cripple who walked all bent over, Schlegel wrote. He lives in great need. Even the missionaries perpetuated identity laws for enslaved people. Schlegel and his brethren omitted the names of the black forge workers they baptized and buried while dutifully recording white identities. A 2017 geneticist, David Reich of Harvard, who is white, and his colleagues joined the team. They sampled DNA from the remains and sequenced the whole genomes of 27 people, identifying five family groups of mothers and children within the cemetery. None included any adult male relatives, possibly assigned men and women were buried separately, in keeping with the Moravian missionaries' traditions. Comparing the DNA in the Catoctin samples with databases of modern populations, revealed that more people in the cemetery had European ancestry through the male than the female line, consistent with historic evidence of owners fathering children with enslaved black women. Comer wondered whether scientists could link the unnamed bodies at Catoctin Furnace to living people. By 2020, ancient DNA technology was close to being able to find connections between people who had lived in the past few hundred years and people today, says co-author Adeowen Harney, then a Ph.D. student in Reich's lab and now a researcher at 23andMe. We wanted to develop this technology and apply it to historic populations where it would have the most impact. Deploying modified versions of the tools 23andMe and other direct-to-consumer companies used to find genetic relatives, Harney identifies stretches of DNA shared between the people in company's database and people in the cemetery, 
segments called identical by descent, IBD. The more and longer segments you share, the closer your relationship, Harney, who is white, explains. Most of the 41,799 people who matched had just a few short IBD segments in common with people from Catoctin Furnace. That suggests distant connections dating back centuries to shared ancestors in Africa or Europe who lived generations before the cemetery was in use. Harney also identified 2,975 living people in the 23andMe database who shared significantly higher amounts of DNA with the people from Catoctin Furnace. Some were estimated to be as little as five degrees removed, the equivalent of a great-great-great-grandparent, about right for a direct descendant 225 years later. Because 23andMe's database includes geographic data, Harney could even suggest where the cemetery's descendants ended up. Many families didn't go far. Dozens of very close relatives still live in Maryland, and many more are spread across the southeastern United States. To protect participants' privacy, only employees of 23andMe know the exact locations. But for now, those descendants remain unaware of the connection. People in the 23andMe database whose sequences were matched to those of the Catoctin workers signed a consent form with the company allowing use of their DNA for a wide variety of research topics. But the agreement promised their data would be anonymized and results would not be returned to them directly. The company is still working out how to ethically offer most people the possibility of being directly connected to their forebearers. That was the Science Magazine article titled, Forging Connections, How DNA from Enslaved Black Workers at a 19th Century Iron Forge Links Them to Living Descendants. It was published August 3rd, 2023, and written by Andrew Curry. That's all the time we have this week. If you would like to listen to this program again or past editions of the African American Hour, you can find them wherever you get your podcast or at the Audio Reader website at reader.ku.edu. I'm Byron Buckner, and thank you for listening to the African American Hour. <laughs>